Hello, and welcome to the Nutritionist Therapy Podcast, brought to you by Nestle Health Science Canada. This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals for education purposes. I'm your host, Bethany Hopkins, Medical Affairs Manager with Nestle Health Science. Today, we will be talking with Anton Emanuel, MD, about approaches to managing enterolytrition intolerance. Dr. Emanuel is an academic neurogastroenterologist at University College London and consultant gastroenterologist at University College Hospital and the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery at Queen Square. His clinical work encompasses being director of the GI Physiology Unit at University College Hospital, as well as providing a gastroenterology service at Queen Square. Dr. Emanuel's research includes basic gut neurophysiology and the study of the pathophysiology and management of gastrointestinal disorders of the upper and lower gut in neurological disease and functional conditions. He is the editor of the journal Frontline Gastroenterology. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Emanuel. As a neurogastroenterologist, you're involved in the management of many individuals receiving enteral nutrition. In our last conversation, we began exploring enteral nutrition intolerance from its prevalence, the many GI symptoms patients are experiencing and how they present, to what clinicians should be thinking about when they're assessing these individuals. Today, we'll continue to explore this concept of enteral nutrition intolerance and GI symptoms, but this time focusing on the management considerations for clinicians when they're working with these patients. So I'd like you to begin with the upper GI symptoms that patients may experience and what are some of the management considerations that we should be thinking about. Thank you. Um, So yes, I think if we're talking about the upper GI symptoms, we'd sort of begin to lump in those patients who have either nausea, vomiting, or reflux symptoms, or early satiety after feed, um, or even those with abdominal discomfort, and we'd start looking at those. And the first thing I guess we'd all do as clinicians is to think about looking at the rate and of the and style of feeding we're giving. Should we carry on with infusion feeding or should we be thinking about bolus feeding? Um, we should think about the time of feeding. Sometimes we need to change the feed timing if, our, if the vomiting diary that we mentioned last time suggests that actually that's a critical part of this. The feeding events are very much related to the vomiting episodes. Then sometimes we need to avoid that to avoid the symptom triggers that are there. Um, sometimes it, patients say, look, the the diary showed us that it happened after my exertion or my gym session and then we need to work around that. Um, Then as I say the other thing that's really quite a big consideration and we're very invested in in my unit in London is the idea of considering bolus feeding where possible. We can talk about what that means maybe um, but that's quite an interesting issue. I think some of us have very setist ideas and I guess if I summarize my perspective it would be that I am open to the idea as an extra bit of the armamentarium rather than saying it's what everyone must do. Um, but it's another option for change as we go through. Sometimes we, as I say, reduce feed volume and talk about making a different concentration of feed. Sometimes we reduce the size of water flushes as a way of trying to reduce the impact of this. Some of this may seem obvious uh, to some of the listeners, but actually for some of us it's, it's worth just remembering these little things that may make a small difference. Um, Occasionally, it's possible to suggest to the GP or similar, the family doctor, changes of medication. It's not uncommon for patients to be taking anticholinergic drugs, which they don't need. They were given them after hospital admission, and they just carried on being prescribed, and actually discontinuing the unnecessary antihistamine or the bladder medication can have a profound effect on reducing that kind of uh, burden on on the patient. Um, Or switching anti-Parkinsonian medication. A lot of patients who are 
on taking these drugs, they have a side effect of making their, their bowel move slower and their whole gut move slower. Um, making sure the patient is in a good position, at least 45 degrees if possible when they're fed or more upright. Um, ensure the, f- the feed timings uh, don't reduce the efficacy of other medications, especially the, the PPIs, the proton pump inhibitors. We know that if we are taking those drugs, it's best taken on an empty stomach. And if somebody's having a very long continuous feed, then the effect of those drugs is lost, and then their ability to reduce secretion and reduce vomiting is wasted. So we have to train the patients to time their drug in those quiet moments. So there's those first line type things. And then there's the the second line approaches, which are to, we would say in very specific conditions, if somebody has a lot of intolerances in their history, we would think about talking about soy formulas where we suspect or know their intolerances. If um, we have a patient who we've suspected from our assessment a problem with gastric emptying and gastroparesis, we, we would be very keen to start them in a whey-based peptide feed because we believe that makes a big difference to the kind of speed of digestion and the ability to get through the stomach more quickly. And then we move on to third-line options, which are the much more radical ones, which involve the wider team, which is to consider other forms of say jejunal feeding or the like so there's a lot of meat on that bone i've just mentioned there um and maybe we want to discuss some of that uh, a bit more one of the questions i have for you when you're talking about sort of those first line options and you mentioned bolus feeding and i know there's lots of different definitions of what bolus feeding is or intermittent feeding what do you mean by bolus feeding you're absolutely right to pick me up because it's a term which is often used as dichotomous, bolus versus continuous. And from my perspective, bolus itself has got a spectrum to it. There's bolus feeding where you just give 50 mil boluses, slugs, every so often. And then there's a feed where you put in 200, 250, 300 mils over a short infusion period, uh, more like a meal, as it were. And I think we would consider that there isn't enough data out there to say one is better than the other in any particular circumstance. But as I inferred, it's part of that kind of having a, a spectrum of things in our wardrobe, which allows us to say, um, ah, here's an option for us to think about uh, because this is not working other ways. So um, I think what I all I'd say is that we mustn't, I would suggest, be too wedded to the idea that a continuous pump tube feed is the only option. It may be difficult to get family and carers trained to safely use bolus bolus feeding of whichever sort, but it's worth thinking about um, in certain cases. Mm -hmm. And I think in some cases, perhaps patients and family members might like the flexibility of that as well, you know, as opposed to using a pump. Um, So it's a little bit of trial and error, isn't it, to sort of see what's going to work and what is the right rate and timing. Are there times when clinicians should avoid feeding overnight, for instance? This may seem a bit like heresy, what I'm about to say now, but um, I offer it up as a bit of physiology. We know that in healthy individuals and in patients, that at night time you have the slowest and most reduced amount of contraction through the gut. So your small bowel and your colon go to sleep when you go to sleep. And the idea of putting strain on that system by feeding it, for most patients, isn't an issue. But there will be some patients who are super sensitive to that. So their gut is dormant and it's suddenly having to do digestive work. And it can cause them to be restless or have discomfort. And we tend to think, oh, well, it's just maybe some of them may just be, it's, it's 
actually due to the fact that their gut is sensitive. It's not them being overly complaining. It's actually a sensitive gut. So I think it's worth considering. And again, it comes back to that idea of taking, getting a diary or getting the patient to give a bit more detailed history. We tend to take a history in a very sort of, you know, yes, no formula. And maybe the best way is to let patients make the observations themselves and say this. So, yeah, we are very keen on the idea of thinking about if we can avoid feeding overnight or when the bowel is at rest, that would be a good thing. Mm-hmm. I know you have a lot of experience, um, you know, from your practice. Are there any case examples that really stand out for you as an illustration of, you know, how you've used nutrition and it's made a significant difference? So I have quite a few patients with neurological disease who I look after um, who have who need feeding because of their swallow mechanism being unsafe or similar. And in those patients, part of their neurological disease, I'm talking about things like motor neuron disease, Parkinson's disease, multiple sclerosis when they have upper esophageal involvement, um, part of their, some of the patients I look after with severe strokes, part of their problem is not just the swallowing mechanism, the same insult, the same neurological injury which occurred to cause their swallowing problems, also causes gastric emptying problems. And therefore, the rate of emptying of the stomach is a real issue, and the rate of digestion is a real issue. And so using a feed based on something other than the normal um, casein-based feeds, for us, is quite a desirable thing, because we feel that the data is strong enough to say, look, in this situation, where there is this problem of backing up and it's not responding to positional change or identifying changes in their diary, those are the patients in whom we're very keen to then move on to a a whey-based feed. Because for us, that makes a big difference in getting patients who otherwise would be thinking about moving on to jejunostomy feeds or much more invasive things or drugs even. I can think of about literally every month a situation where I'm with the dilemma of should I be changing patients' antiemetics, giving them a prokinetic drug with its variability of effect and uncertain side effects? Should I be doing that versus switching them to a feed? And sometimes it's a bit more easy and often more successful to switch their feed regime than it is to make radical changes to their drug regime, which they don't tolerate, which have a knock-on effect on their bladder or their spasms or their mobility. So I think the the reality is that very few tube patients are the neat, nice ones we see on the posters. They often have more complex, shall we say, dirty needs in there. And drugs are very powerful ways of making something dirty, even dirtier. They're very powerful ways of making something simpler, but they have side effects. And, you know, if I can do something which manipulates people's outcomes without necessarily running the risk of changing their side effects, I will tend to think about that first. So that's a very generic answer to a very specific question about patient groups, but that's one thing. The other group in particular is the diabetics or patients who have diabetes, because even if they don't have insulin-dependent diabetes, even type 2 diabetes, these patients get gastroparesis, and that can be a real significant factor. Mm-hmm. And so really, when you think about, um, as you mentioned, nutrition is, it's a, I guess, I think of it as a, a low-tech solution and a, and a low-risk alternative to, you know, use of medications um, in some individuals that can have a significant impact on managing, you know, some of these symptoms. So thank you. Before we finish, uh, I'd just like to talk for a moment, or have you talk for a moment about lower GI symptoms uh, that can be problematic? problematic for individuals and what you'd suggest um, for management of those? So I think one of the first considerations for people who have a kind of constipated type presentation is whether we need to think about fiber-based feeds. 
And if we recall the discussion we had last time, um, if patients have a slow transit type problem, just to recap, that means the infrequent urge to go and the hard stools, if they have that problem, then giving them a higher fiber diet is not particularly helpful. We know that high fiber and slow transit makes emptying worse, in fact. So, but the other patients who have the more normal transit problems, then those ones in who are who, the ones in whom a higher fiber diet will generally do well. And that's a pretty well-described observation. So it's worth making that, that distinction between slow transit versus evacuation disorder. And the ones who have mixed, prob- mixed problems, they'll do well with a fiber diet as well. So that's the first consideration. And if you can't change the fiber formula, just adding fiber to the formula may be another option that we find very beneficial. Remembering that for the average female patient we have, they need about 25 grams of fiber a day. And the average male patient needs about 35 grams of fiber a day. So if we factor that those numbers in, that's a worthy consideration for the ones with non-slow transit, just to emphasize that. Again, I don't want to seem like I'm harping on about this, but we've had a very beneficial effect in some patients by that whole thing about increasing the rate of digestion. When we switch them to a whey-based formula, we can see quite a few of our patients who've gone from a constipated phenotype to a more normal emptying. So, And sometimes we've had patients, I can think of one I just saw last week, who said, you know, I didn't know I was constipated despite all your questions, but I'm definitely emptying more completely when I go now, Doc. And, I, and that's not an unusual unusual report so that's uh, something which we've been aware of and of course there's a lot of attention in the the non-fed community about low FODMAPs foods and there is a bit of um, awareness that's needed about the kind of fiber we're using uh, around these kind of fermentable and osmotically rich fibers um, for the patients with diarrhea to focus on that for a second um, we often just we do a management strategy almost as a test so we often suggest a trial reduction or cessation of feed to see whether there is this um, relationship because sometimes it's a relationship people think back to that liquid in liquid out phenomenon but actually when they observe it they find that they're still getting diarrhea despite the feed and that's quite a helpful observation for us because those are the ones in whom we think well they will need an anti-diarrheal drug because they have something wrong with their gut or they may have small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or they may need something additional to consider or they may have a overflow problem um so that's the group in whom we'd say look the trial of cessation of feeding or reducing the rate can be quite helpful and again we occasionally try a peptide-type feed to reduce the osmolarity of the formula because that can be a factor for some patients with diarrhea. So what I would like to suggest is that there isn't a single magic bullet which sorts everything out. There isn't a single magic question that we can ask which will open the door. It's about having, from my perspective, it's like going to a restaurant having a menu where you open up and you say, right, here are the things I could have and today I will just have an appetizer or I'll just have a main course and of the main courses I'll have a this it's about having that options rather than saying you must first have a main course then have dessert then have coffee it doesn't work like that from our perspective it's more about having a range of therapies I love that analogy one last question before we close and as you were talking about fiber I, I started to think about water because I often think about fluid and fiber you know sort of together so if you are increasing the fiber content in someone's in someone's diet through enteral formula or managing someone with diarrhea that would be a consideration as well then people would need to be thinking about you're absolutely right yes I, I glossed over that and thank you uh, we'd need to make sure that that fiber has something to work with you know fiber has two effects a chemical effect on the gut bacteria and a physical effect of 
stretching the bowel out and that latter one needs the water. And the interesting thing is that for most of us at 10 to 15 grams of fiber a day, the chemical effect is maxed out. Hence the reason why slow transit patients don't get any additional benefit. Um, so the physical effect, you need to maximize that by making sure there's adequate water on board to create that distension of the bowel and therefore the, the prokinetic effect of the fiber. So thank you for sharing your perspective on the management of these various GI intolerance symptoms. And this is a relatively common phenomena, as you'd mentioned, in tube-fed individuals and one that can have a significant impact on patients, caregivers, and poses a real dilemma for clinicians. So the management strategies that you share today, I believe, will be a valuable tool in the toolbox for clinicians when they do face these challenging predicaments. So thank you, Dr. Emanuel, for joining us, and, and thank you to our listeners. Thank you. This concludes this episode of the Nutrition as Therapy podcast. Please check out our website at nestlehealthscience.ca for more information. For the Nestle Health Science podcast team, I'm Bethany Hopkins.